ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. This program's a little different from others on ReachMD. There are two hosts. And we're looking for your feedback right now on the phone, on the web, and on Twitter. We're covering topics across the field of medicine and talking to experts you want to hear from. Today we welcome a distinguished guest, Dr. David Kessler. He's a former commissioner of the FDA, and he'll join us to discuss his new book, The End of Overeating. Now, we all know that the high fat content and sugars in our food has a major role in this country's obesity epidemic, but it's not all about our genetics and our sedentary lifestyle. But why do we struggle with food? Why do we overeat? How can all of us gain control of our food habits and, and help our patients? You won't want to miss this really great interview with Dr. Kessler. Our number is 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Give us a call. But before that interview, we've got a few choice topics to cover, including health literacy. Do our patients know more about their bodies than they did 40 years ago? The answer, coming up. And we'll also stop, uh, stop by the ReachMD forum to talk Twitter, how the medical community is using the social media site, perhaps even to improve our patients' health literacy rates. Call us at 888-MD-1-REACH. That's 888-MD-1-REACH. Okay. First, our regular feature, Reach MDs. That's news to me. Reviewing curious headlines from the world of medicine. I love this section, Michael. Me Here too. is the most out there question for you, if you like. Let's say you suffered a spinal cord injury because I'm extraordinarily morbid, and that's the way I think. And there's a therapy available that may improve your condition long term, but in the short run, you'd turn blue. And I'm talking like Cookie Monster Blue, Blue Man Group Blue, really, really blue. Question is, would you take that treatment? Well, not if I was blue from not breathing, but this is about a, an article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Research, researchers examined the effects of the dye known as Brilliant Blue G, that's Brilliant Blue G, or BBG, on rats given by systemic injection 15 minutes after a crush injury. Now, this dye is off, also used in eye procedures to visualize transparent tissues. And it, amazingly enough, this dye reduced spinal cord inflammation. There was much better long-term outcome. Six weeks later, the rats that had the blue dye were up walking and the others weren't. That's interesting. I mean, from what we could understand, and this is basically biology 101 for us, um, BBG seems to block ATP or adenosine triphosphate, Michael, and that seems to cause uh, inflammation after a spinal cord injury. So basically this, this compound seems to uh, block it, but without that, ATP overstimulates the motor neurons in the spinal cord until they eventually die. Um, from metabolic stress, I think, is what they were saying. So that's really interesting. The really cool thing about this, though, is that the blue dye apparently crosses the blood-brain barrier, which allows them to administer it systemically and not directly as an injection of the spinal cord, which is totally uh, not practical for most physicians. Right, and I think we have to say that this is not a treatment that's out there for human beings yet. This is about turning mice blue, and it's in the laboratory still. But it's the, it's the equivalent dye used in blue M&Ms and licorice and Gatorade. So I told you those blue M&Ms were good for you. <laughs> not the green ones. Not the green ones, never the green ones. But you have to wonder then, uh, if we're looking at the future, would uh, you know, some sort of uh, spinal cord injury med combo be methylprednisolone and Gatorade? They seem to work in a similar way. They take down inflammation. Well, it's also important, Matt, these are, this is for crush injury only. It's not for severed spinal cord. Mm -hmm. It's not for other spinal cord injuries. It's strictly for crush. And this is a food additive, the diet that was approved in 1982. And uh, our yearly average consumption is like five grams of this stuff already. So... Uh, I'm surprised we're not blue. And <laughs> what about red dye? Remember that one? That <laughs> we'll was interesting. I'm sure that'll come along. 
Okay, on to the ReachMD forum, Matt. Do you know where your kidneys are right now? Sure Do you know what so. they're doing? <laughs> All right. More aptly, do our patients know where theirs are? Today, we're going to look at health literacy in the context of a new study asking patients to locate their various organs. Yeah, it's interesting. So the study was published in Biomed Central Family uh, Practice, and it asked members of the general public, including patients uh, of the studiers, to identify the location of various organs in the human body. Uh, obviously, the key question is, do we know more than we did 40 years ago as a general public? So what they found was they tested about 700 people, uh, some during a, a medical visit, some just, I think, at a, at a random location. And they found that, uh, among other things, only one in four knew where their lungs were, approximately, I think, one in two for their heart. But uh, I guess not surprisingly enough, everyone seemed to know where their intestines were. About nine out of 10 thought uh, that they could identify where their intestines were. Well, that's because we're so obese. And we're going to talk about that. That's why we know where they're right it's in front of us. It's all about the theme. Well, this today. is an interesting topic, and I think it goes deeper than you know where people if people know where their lungs are. You just have to watch Jay Leno to see how really silly we are and not knowing things. But I remember going to a physician with one of my children years ago, and he was speaking jargon. And I had to stop and say, listen, you know, I'm, I'm a dermatologist. I only know where the skin is. And the bigger question is, are we, are we helping to educate our patients who may not know where their lungs are or help educate them about disease processes? I think this is key to helping them get better. Yeah, it's a good it's a good dichotomy or division that you draw there. I think that that is an important distinction. But uh, one thing that was interesting is that people who had an ailment, and this is something that they studied here as well, if they had an ailment in a specific organ, they were still no more likely to know the organ's location. And that is a little bit surprising. Uh, you think that people become more educated about at least the location of their of their organ in distress if they are undergoing some sort of treatment or if they're uh, having a condition for a specific problem. Well, once again, it's up to education. I mean, you may know where your heart is, but are we educated? people about the real symptoms of heart attack. You may, you may have a heart attack, but your pain may be going down your arm. Yeah. So you don't need to know where your heart is. You need to know what the symptoms of a disease process are. Yeah. And once again, it gets back to, are we having enough time spent with our patients where we can help them? How about you in medical school? Did you know where every organ was? <laughs> I will admit that there were some organs uh, that took me by surprise, and I had to kind of <laughs> silently admit that. Uh, the spleen was one that completely uh, shocked me. I had no idea where it was. I probably figured it was in the thighs somewhere. Uh, kidneys as well. I mean, I didn't know retroperitoneal. I did not know what that meant, and I didn't know that it was that far back. So, I mean, some things will take you by surprise. I have to give the general public uh, credit for that. I mean, there's some things that, that you're not going to know. But pain is misleading, I, I, would, I would say. I mean, we have referred pain. And did you so. believe them when they said your brain was down in your gluteus maximus? I still believe them. Okay. I believe that too sometimes with me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way we are as human beings. All right. So we need to spend more time educating our patients. And I think that this is important about disease processes, not just where the kidney is, but what it does and what its symptoms are. Agreed. Now it's your turn. The ReachMD poll wants you to voice your opinion and vote. ReachMD XM160 now presents the ReachMD poll. Well, Michael, as you know, we always ask our listeners to go to our website and vote on our current ReachMD poll. And this week's question surveys your thoughts on Twitter. You almost can't go anywhere without hearing a pitch for Twitter. I know. You're tweeting all the time. <laughs> and the medical community is definitely a growing part of that Twitter sphere. I think we can agree on that. Right. Well, you know, let me talk about Twitter. I, I, when I saw this and I knew I had to talk about it, I went on to Twitter yesterday and I signed on and I was totally confused because all of a sudden there were two people who wanted to follow me, total mm. strangers, and I was supposed to be following Kevin Spacey and a bunch of other people. I got really confused and I, and I, and I also wondered about how I was able to get messages out in only 140 letters. But there are a lot of doctors using this, all right? 
There um, are a lot of doctors using it. I mean, we can give you a wider berth because you are a dermatologist, as you mentioned in the last section. But uh, there are several reasons to tweet. Uh, if we're looking at adding a web presence for doctors, which a lot of doctors have to do their own marketing, it makes sense. If you're trying to look into adding to patient communication, if you're looking to increase as a marketing tool, uh, place uh, shared info, uh, there are a number of ways. Even maybe in expanding the doctor-patient relationship has been discussed. Well, there's two things about Twitter that's very interesting. Number one, they are very short messages. And it's, it's almost viral in the way that you can spread messages across because people following you have other followings. And if you want to get a message across, it goes like, like a tree and just spreads mm-hmm. out to thousands of people. So if enough people were on Twitter, it would be a really good way to disseminate information. The other side of that coin, Matt, is that I think like after... Um, one month, 60% of people are not active who go on. I think it's frustrating. You've got to wade through all of these messages to get to the things you want to read or, or yeah. the tweets. Well, it raises the question, is this a passing fad uh, in, in the pop culture, or is this something that's really going to affect practice down the road? Well, I don't know, because there are people that stay on Facebook. There are people that stay on all these other social uh, websites. And I, I personally, I find them... I'm not happy with them. I get on there and I really don't care what people had for dinner. I don't care about all the the masses of useless information. So if there could be a way to filter down to the better information, maybe there is. Maybe I don't know, but maybe I'll go back on Twitter and try it sometime. Well, do you think that doctors might be able to control the info stream? I mean, talk about let's talk about a public health scare like a, a swine flu alert. Do you think that that's something that could be a useful uh, application for this. Absolutely. If you wanted to get some information across very, very quickly, like I said, it spreads virally. One person tells a thousand, a thousand people tell 20,000. It can, it can spread like that. So there's really some good applications here for the future. But once again, I think we have to control the, the basically boring messages that get on there most of the time. And the big question is, do you tweet? <laughs> well, it's food for thought. Yeah, I squeak sometimes when I walk from my knee implant. But so we do, we do want to know your reaction. Share your thoughts with us on our website, ReachMD.com, where you too can vote on the ReachMD poll. All right, Michael, moving on to the ReachMD news quiz with this fabulous music. Yes, here's the deal. We're going to take an issue that's in the news, break it down, and come up with a question that we think gets at the core of the issue, but isn't receiving as much notice as it deserves. We'll give you time to think about it, um, and later in the show, we'll give you the answer. So normally our quiz doesn't sync up this perfectly with our guest interview topic, but this week it's all coming together. We're looking at state obesity rates across the U.S. The nonprofit, nonpartisan foundation Trust for America's Health has released their 2009 report titled F is in Fat, How Obesity Policies Are Failing in America. It is truly a somber report in many aspects to see how really fat we are. <laughs> but there were a few items that really stuck out, two of which turned into our news quiz. Only one state tips the scales with adult obesity rates under 20%. That means the thin state. Meanwhile, one other state weighs in with child obesity rates north of 40%. I mean, there are a bunch of, of really obese kids running around with lots of health issues. So which states are they? And the answers we'll give you in a bit. But if you're just joining us, welcome to you. You're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, alongside Dr. Michael Greenberg. And our number here is 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Give us a call at 888-631-7322. So as we mentioned in the quiz, we're all familiar with the laundry list of health issues related to obesity. And it seems like our country just can't put the brakes on the epidemic. We've got countless diet fads, we've got weight loss pills, counseling, surgery, exercise routines of every kind, and I've tried most of them, but nothing is curbing the trend. And one competing idea centers on a different kind of diet. It's really not a diet. It says, plain and simple, we eat too much. Too many sugars, too many fats, too many calories, 
But that still may not get to the core of the issue because we've tried eating less, I know, with M&Ms, trust me, and it's hard to stop, eat all the blue ones. The real question is, why do we eat this much? Well, one physician may have some answers there. He's Dr. David Kessler, the commissioner of the FDA from 1990 to 1997. Dr. Kessler has also served as the dean of the medical schools at UCSF and Yale University. His new book is titled The End of Overeating, Taking Control, Taking Control of the Insatiable American Appetite. And he joins us now on Second Opinion Live. Welcome, Dr. Kessler. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So listen, uh, Dr. Kessler, um, first question is, and can we, can we call you David? Sure. You can call us Matt and Michael, all right? Listen, I read your book. I lost 10 pounds. So the, the question is, why can't we stop eating those bowls of blue M&Ms? It all has to do with the, the brain circuitry and how we respond um, to uh, those M&Ms. So based on past learning, past experience, you've had those M&Ms, you look at those M&Ms, they serve as a cue, it activates the reward circuits uh, of your brain. There's increased attention, increased arousal, you uh, eat them, uh, there's a momentary pleasure, you block out all other stimuli uh, while you're eating them, uh, you get you get cued again the next time. Every time you eat them, you strengthen the neural circuits. The power of food comes from the anticipation. That cue, it is a neural circuit that's involved. It stimulates thoughts of wanting. It's very hard once that neural circuitry, that old learning gets laid down to change that neural circuitry. In other words, it feels good when you eat it, but then afterwards it's to go, where did those M&Ms go? Is there ever any real satisfaction? You're caught in this cycle of arousal, release. You're constantly chasing that next, you know, responding to that cue. Your brain can, is activated. I can show you on the fMRI. Let me give you three characteristics. Of individuals. Some people have no idea, can't relate to these others, say you're describing me. First, a hard time uh, resisting your favorite foods. A self-report loss of control in the face of highly palatable foods. Two, a lack of satiation, a lack of feeling full when you're eating. Three, a preoccupation of thinking about foods between meals. So sometimes you're thinking about, as you're eating, you're thinking about, even though there's food in front of you, what you're going to be eating next. Those three characteristics, loss of control, lack of satiation, a preoccupation with thinking about foods. That, those are elements of a conditioned and driven behavior. We call it conditioned hypereating. About 50% of people who are obese, about 30% of people who are overweight, 20% of people who are a healthy weight, we self-report those three characteristics score very high on those scales. And what's important is when we scan their brains in, in, just in two phases, just during the anticipation of food, don't even give them the food, just when they're anticipating the food. It could be the sight, the smell of food. We see elevation in the brain reward pathway, especially in the amygdala. And when they start eating the food, it doesn't shut off until all the food is gone. So it's not their fault. We have a biological correlate. There's a reason, there's a scientific reason why our brains are literally being hijacked by this fat, sugar, and salt. So you call it conditioned hypereating. Is that a term that you've coined with your team, or is this something that uh, even exists on a DSM in some manifestation? No, it, it's not in the DSM. It doesn't. Uh, it's a t term that we have uh, coined for those three characteristics, loss of control, lack of satiation, and preoccupation of thinking about foods doesn't meet the classic uh, definitions of uh, binge eating. It's not a disease, uh, but uh, what we see is that there's a 
biological correlate for people who you know, report these having these characteristics. Okay, so let's shift over to the food industry's role here. Um, what is the food industry doing, oh, I know from your book, that makes us want to eat these things? They understand the inputs. They understand that fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar, and salt stimulate intake. They understand the outputs that we come back from more. They understood the neuroscience? No. But they've learned, and they've, they've, they've learned experientially right, how to construct foods that achieve that optimal bliss point that you keep on coming back for more. So they construct foods. They've loaded and layered fat, sugar, and salt into food, put it on every corner, made it available 24-7, made it into entertainment, and the result is this obesity epidemic. So we become addicted to these. You use the word uh, addicted. I didn't use the word addicted in, in the book. I noticed but, that. Yeah. But, but, but in essence, it's the same reward pathways. Okay. But if we're talking about you know, uh, motives for, from the food industry, obviously you talk about profit being the bottom line, pushing this hyper-palatable uh, food in the menus, as you put it. So my question to that is, you know, why haven't other countries like France or Japan that you talk about, why have they not adopted this kind of menu long ago? And what makes our country unique in that respect? If profit is the bottom line, you'd think that'd be universal. Very important question. Um, and if you look at the French, they've eaten highly palatable foods, good-tasting foods. What's the difference? Look at their social norms. It's not socially acceptable uh, to eat uh, throughout the day. They eat during meals. They don't walk down the street eating. They don't eat in their cars, not selling food in their gas stations or on every corner. What have we done in the United States? We took fat, sugar, and salt, put it on every corner, made it socially acceptable to eat any time. We've taken down all the barriers that protected us against responding to cues, uh, you know, all the time. Well, is it also true that they don't have a lot of high fructose corn syrup in all of their food like we do? Again, I mean, there are um, a number of different reasons, but I think the main reason is they eat with some certain structure, certainly the French. I mean, if you look, go look at the Japanese, their diet is very different. Uh, you know, it, it, it's fish, it's vegetables, it's not, uh, certainly it's not sugar, um, uh, and the fats are very different. So, so the fact is that sugar, sweetness, high fructose corn syrup, whatever it is, uh, you know, that sweetness does stimulate intake. In fact, we published an article called Deconstructing the Vanilla Milkshake. What do you think it is in that vanilla milkshake? The, the sugar, the fat, the flavor that drives intake. Which one do you think it is? Sugar. It is sugar. Sugar is the main driver, but when you add well done. fat to it, it's synergistic. Fat and sugar it, tastes even better, I know. But, but it, <laughs> you, you say it tastes, but I can show you the effect on the neural circuitry. With my colleague, Gitano Di Cherry, one of the great pharmacologists in Italy, Gitano normally studies the brain response to amphetamine and cocaine and shows elevated dopamine levels uh, after cocaine and amphetamine administration. What does dopamine do? It locks in your brain's attention. It focuses you on certain stimuli. And it was always thought that drugs elevate brain dopamine, uh, and, but food, you may get a little bump, but it habituates. Second time, the third time, you don't get the same elevation of dopamine. So I said to Jatana, let's take fat and sugar together and let's see what happens to brain dopamine. And in fact, you see the continual elevation. So is there like a, a change, as far as you know, up or, up or down regulation of receptors that we often use as a guideline to saying that uh, other substances can be addictive? Yeah, I, I'm, there, there certainly is. We have the fMRI uh, data. We don't have the PET data that would show actually the, the change in, uh, in up and down uh, you know, receptor regulation. Nora Volko has studied uh, some of that. We certainly understand 
that these involve, these changes involve the learning, memory, motivation, and habit circuits of the brain. I think it's more of a, I think we have to get into more of a systems neuroscience approach because we're really activating certain of, uh, you know, these are fundamental brain circuitry of what makes us human. This isn't a disease. This is really, this affects the learning, memory, motivational, and habit circuits of the brain. Well, then let's change and get a little bit more practical here. How do we break these bad habits is the first part of the question I'd ask you. And the second thing is, how can we as physicians help our patients break them? Besides reading your book, which is excellent, it's called The End of Overeating. How can we do this? First, you have to understand what's driving this. This is the excessive activation of the brain circuitry that the behavior is becoming conditioned and driven, and we're constantly being bombarded with food cues, and then anticipation of food is activating um, those uh, circuits. So once you know that, okay, now how do you cool down the stimulus? Right? Because what the stimulus is, it's serving, serving, as, serving as a cue. It's activating the brain circuits. You're responding to that. So just think it through. You can remove this, the, the cue. Right, so you get the fat and sugar, fat and salt, fat, sugar and salt out of your home. Right? So you're not constantly being bombarded. I mean, that's, that's a start, but then you walk down the street and you're getting cued there. So it's not very practical to say you can have an environment without any cues. Two, you can eat with certain structure. When you eat at meals and you eat in a planned way and you know what you're going to eat and when you're going to eat, then when you're cued in between meals, you don't have the same activation of the brain circuit. Tell a smoker you can't smoke for the next four hours. It's going to be impossible, and you don't see the activation of that uh, brain circuitry. So if you know you're not going to eat for the next four hours uh, or three hours or whatever it is, then your, your brain is going to eventually not be uh, activated as much, and that will make it easier to resist. But in the end, how do you cool down the stimulus? If you look at that stimulus and say, that's my friend, I want that, I need that, and you have thoughts of wanting that reinforce that uh, act, when the brain gets activated and the amygdala gets activated, right? and then you have thoughts of wanting, so you have the emotional aspect, and then you add on to that the cognitive thoughts of wanting, which, which reinforce each other. That's where it becomes very powerful. So what do you have to change? You, ha you know, if you want to lose weight but you still want the food, there's going to be a disconnect. You got to look at the food in a different way, and you got to say, you know, uh, I don't want that. I want something else to eat. I don't want those huge portions. I don't want that fat and sugar. But you have to change what you want. You got to change relationship with food, not the stuff of diets, not the stuff of easy miracle fixes. Yeah, but isn't there a contradiction to some extent there in which if we're talking about food compared to other uh, addictive substances that one tries to uh, completely take away from their life eventually? It's food is something you can never actually, it's a basic human need. We can't actually escape from it. So, I mean, how do we temper that with behavioral modification? Right. So it's, um, first of all, is it just behavioral modification or is it behavioral, emotional, and cognitive modification. Two, is it really a contradiction? No question, it's harder, because you're exactly right. You know, how did we change uh, uh, tobacco, the success in tobacco? We changed how we as a country perceive the product. We used to perceive it as something that was cool, something was glamorous, something we wanted. We changed it to what it is, a deadly addictive uh, product. The tobacco is easy, because you can live without tobacco. But it's not a contradiction with food, it's just, it's harder. I mean, but still, huge portions of food, food that is highly processed, food that is uh, loaded and layered with fat and sugar and salt, you can change what kind of foods you want. And in some ways, changing what kind of foods you, you want changes uh, the degree of activation. So you, it's much harder, but you've seen some people become vegetarian, some people eat organic, some people look at highly processed food and say, I don't want that, 
certain people look at huge portions and say, I don't want it. So, again, it has to be more finely tempered. Than, obviously, we need food, but you don't need uh, food that's loaded and layered with fat, sugar, and salt. It's just going to stimulate you to eat more and more. I think you're right. Part of the reason why I lost weight after reading your book was I, would go to, I went to a wedding right afterwards, and I made up my mind before I went. I said, I'm having no hors d'oeuvres, no dessert, no alcohol, period. It was like a, a, a cognitive rule in my mind, and I avoided those things. And, so, so what, what, what's key, this is, you know, you, you, you're on, you, you develop private rules for yourself. Now, what's very important is you have no ambivalence about those private rules, right? If, if you really still want, you know, uh, you know, what you've decided to cut out, you're only going to have uh, thoughts of wanting. That will lead to obsessions and cravings. If you can decide what you want to cut out, and you're willing, you really want to cut it out, and you have no ambivalence, you know that inner dialogue, boy, that tastes good. Now I shouldn't have that. Just I, d- I deserve a treat. I deserve <laughs> no, 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 no. If, if that's the way you approach it, that's only going to increase uh, the reward value of food and drive your thoughts of wanting. So that doesn't help. But if you can develop private rules and follow them, I know if I eat fries, right, I'm going to finish the entire, no matter how many you put in front of me. So I just developed this rule, and I don't eat it. In some ways, it calms it down. But if I, if I really go, boy, I really want this, because I feel deprived, I, you know, it, then it's not going to work. So if you can develop private rules of things you want to cut out and abstain from, and you can really do it without, you know, this undercurrent of really wanting it, that's where it's best. Yeah, That's one, when it'll work. Yeah, one of my friends said to, to look at food like the fries and say, F, just think of them like, these are toxic for me. I just can't even eat one. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you have any doubt, <laughs> right? But if you look at those and say, boy, they would taste good. Boy, I want them. Boy, you know, that's going to make me feel better. Right? You've got to get rid of that. So you've got to cool down the stimulus. In essence, you're learning to emotionally regulate your response to those foods, and you're developing private rules. That's how it, uh, you really lost 10 pounds? Uh, yeah, I really lost 10 pounds. I'm down, I'm down to gene sizes. It was your book. Well, thank you. We really appreciate you being on the show today, and, and um, I think it's a book that physicians should read, uh, maybe get some of our patients to read, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, do you want those M&Ms now? You know, I have to admit, I still do want the m and I want the blue ones, <laughs> just in case I get my spinal cord crushed well, on the way home. You've got to have something in you to protect No, I, I, think that, I think this is a really good point, because I, I look at my wife, who's a natural, naturally thin person, and you can offer her cookies in the middle of the day, and she just goes, no, I'm not hungry. And I look at it, I go, no, I'm not hungry, but then we'll automatically eat it anyway. And I think that wisdom is in this book when you get through all the research. Well, we, yeah, we definitely look at people who say, and we, we look at them and say, they're very fastidious, fastidious, uh, fastidious eaters, but... Uh, when it comes down to it, maybe they're actually on the normal side. <laughs> well, and the question <laughs> here is, is are we American doctors doing enough to help, of our, help our patients? We really need to educate them. I see patients overweight all the time as a dermatologist and talking about their weight. And I've been in their shoes. You know, I've had to go to programs and lose weight and got rid of all my fat clothes so that I can't gain weight. I would be just, wouldn't have anything to wear. That's a good incentive. All right, back to the quiz. Let's get you the answers to our ReachMD News quiz. As you may recall, we're looking for two states. One has the lowest adult obesity rate, under 20%, and the other has the highest rate of child obesity, almost 45%. Want to take your last guess? You know, I I had some guesses of my own. I would have figured Hawaii was really down there because everyone seems to be about as fit as possible. But the lowest rates of adult obesity in the United States are... In Colorado. Hey, give yourself a hand, Colorado. Colorado, yes. you have done well. Unfortunately, the uh, uh, if we're looking at Colorado, it's 18.9%. But if we're heading southeast from there, uh, to answer the second half of the question, 
which has the highest rate of child obesity? The answer is unfortunately Mississippi, with reported child obesity rates of 44.4%. Have you ever been south and gone into a restaurant and looked at the menu? Macaroni and cheese is listed as a vegetable, Mm -hmm. and everything is fried, including pickle chips. I mean, they fry everything. They eat all this fat. It's not no wonder. All right, to give you a bit of perspective here to our listeners, less than 20 years ago in 1991, not a single state in the union had an adult obesity rate above 20%. We were thin less than 20 years ago. Less than 20 years. And it gives, I mean, obviously the interview we just had, all the topics, uh, talks that we've just had, it makes you question, you know, who's to blame? Is it uh, the food industry? Are they playing a part? Is it uh, our parenting standards that have changed over 20 years? It's really hard to kind of put a finger on it. Well, I think it's our whole lifestyle. I think it's more than that. We're, 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 these days we're so busy, we're so rushed. Parents feed their kids fast food because they don't want to take time cooking. Um, we're always in a hurry and we're always snacking all the time unconsciously. Um, it's, and, and all those snacks, we didn't get to, a chance to talk about it in Dr. Kessler's interview, but they all contain sugar and salt in just the right proportions to make you want to eat the whole box mm-hmm. and just munch them. Yeah, but why Colorado? I mean, mountains. People are is out, mountains. Are there just less McDonald's per square meter? Is that really the I don't the know. Deal? I have a feeling. People I have, don't eat with chapped lips? Is that? Uh... I have relatives that live in Colorado, and they're the most active people I know. They're always out <laughs> hiking, cycling, exercising. The, see, the other side of the coin that we don't talk about besides the food is exercise. Not only do we not eat this, but we plug ourselves in front of computers, and for most people, the we is their form of exercise that are really getting out and taking a long walk or, or bicycle ride. So um, we need to do more about this as doctors in America, obviously, and I hope our listeners will uh, continue to do that. Well, with that, we are out of time today here on Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg eating blue M&Ms here. For more about ReachMD Radio and XM160, visit our website at ReachMD.com, where you can listen to this show and all of our shows. We truly thank you for being here and listening, and please keep listening to these shows. 